Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's podcast, we're honored to have Jason Illion, Managing Director, Coke Disruptive Technologies. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Hey, Grayson. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Really looking forward to this. You've had a 20 plus year career building software companies, and now you're on the other side of the table as a venture capitalist. From an entrepreneur starting their careers, would you be so kind to please kindly share your thoughts from both sides of the table? Yeah. So when you say a 20 year career, I'd like to say that means you have all the scars and bruises and everything else that it takes to build a company of any kind, uh, much less a software company. You know, it's interesting. A lot of my a lot of my friends were in what I called the first wave of building software companies, things like Friendster and Napster and other things. And um, at the time um, when I left school, I started off on the investing side for a few years before I came over to start building software companies. And I had read all those great books, right? And taken all the right business classes. And while that somewhat gives you a sense, it doesn't entirely prepare you for what it takes of all the ups and downs, right? Every chart you see when you're an investor goes up and to the right. Um, but if you're really being honest with yourself, that chart's going up and down and to the right and to the bottom, and you don't know how many sleepless nights you're going to have. And that's what building a company is really all about. And so it's interesting now that I've been an entrepreneur for kind of 15, 20 years, and now I'm on the investing side full time. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate when talking to great entrepreneurs is not only them setting out their vision, which we really want to understand, like, what's your vision? Is it disruptive? How is this going to be a platform that changes society and makes a difference? But we also want to hear, like, what don't you know? Like, where are you concerned? Like, where are the holes? We want a sense of intellectual honesty because if you come and just feel like you got all of it figured out, then I'm struggling with, is that is that hubris? is that you don't understand where your gaps are and it makes it more difficult. And I would say when I was early in my entrepreneur career, you know, I used to think that the investors wanted to know that I had it all figured out. And I don't think that's the case. I think uh, great investors see it as like, hey, we know this is a journey. We know there's things you don't know. And we know a lot of these companies aren't gonna make it to the next level. So. What don't you know? And besides the capital, what else do you need to be successful? And I think that's when it becomes real conversation and you start building real companies. It's a good point that you you mentioned about having it all figured out. And you you mentioned Friendster. So I have, we're going to go back into the uh, the stone age of software. where Back in back time. Back in time. And I, and I remember <laughs> I was working at Epic, Epic Records as part of Sony that time. And MySpace was a 10,000 pound gorilla. And then they got the investment from Rupert Murdoch at News Corp. And nobody saw Facebook coming on because MySpace thought they all had it all figured out. And it was really interesting how they just they stopped innovating and then Facebook kept innovating and was completely uh, able to overtake them. So that was an interesting yeah. point in history. And in, in Charles Koch's Good Profit book, he writes about his love of books and how the quiet nights he spent in Wichita reading helped prepare him to run the Koch Industries after his father Fred passed the reins over to him. As the founder and former CEO of Bookshout, what books have had a positive impact on your life and why? You know, it's a really good question. And, you know, I continue to learn from somebody like Charles, who is to, to say he's an avid reader is an understatement, to say voracious. You go into his library, which I've had the luxury of going to see, and it's, it's just wall-to-wall books, right? Floor to ceiling. And uh, his son Chase said, yeah, and he's read all these. And it's, you're thinking like, wow, he, and, and you believe it, right? Because he, he continues in his 80s to be this continuous learner. 
which has really just been, um, for me, something that's, you set it out there as a goal to be that continuous learner as well. And I've seen the great entrepreneurs as well as the great investors just can just continuously learn from other people around them. And so, you know, just some examples of things that I read and I try to read a wide range. So like a book that I'm reading right now is a book called Range by David Epstein. It's the opposite of Tipping Point, where instead of focusing on one thing, the future is going to be run by people that have a wide range of capabilities. And, you know, one, I guess, I don't know if it's a trick or just something that I found to be really useful is I have this thing called the book challenge. And what I do is I often reach out to two or three people that I respect at a time and say, hey, I will give you a book if you will give me a book in exchange. And our goal is that we both have to read it in the next 90 days and report back on what you think. And it's a great way to get somebody to really stretch you. So if somebody sends you a book on fly fishing in Alaska or the history of ants, you have to read it. And in return, if you, you send them, they have to read it. But what it does is it just expands your horizon because I often find myself getting caught into reading on the worldview or a space that I believe in a lot instead of expanding myself into other areas. And when I have friends that I respect that maybe don't share the same worldview or don't think the way I do, when they send me a book and I have to read it, it just opens up my mind to say like, hey, what else could really be out there and how else should I be thinking? And so I think that's what reading does for you. It expands your worldview. And I think that the book challenge for me has been helpful. Um, and in fact, I was just trading text messages with a well-known investor the other day saying, hey, you want to exchange books? And he said, yeah, just send me one. So he has no idea what he's getting. I have no idea what I'm getting. Uh, but in the next 90 days, uh, we'll be reading over two, two separate books that hopefully will expand both of our horizons and make us more valuable to entrepreneurs and society. And have those expanded horizons helped you as a venture capitalist? I think so. I mean, it's interesting because Coke Disruptive Technologies, our venture and growth arm here, is, is only three years old. So we're still kind of a startup in our own right. So when you say, will that make you better? We still don't know how good we are yet, right? I mean, it takes years and years to see what deals that you've done. Now, we believe we've invested in, in many great companies and um, I've learned something from nearly every CEO that we have in our portfolio, but are we great at this yet or not? I think we need to be intellectually honest and say, we'll see. Um, and we can continuously get better either way that we wanna invest in other companies and other technologies and other platforms and other industries in things that we haven't seen. And to do that, you have to have a broad range of subject matter experts and entrepreneurs around you to um, really attack this space well. And your book club ties really well into Charles's always learning philosophy of how he encourages all the Coke employees to embrace creative destruction within the organization. Could you speak to how this philosophy combined with Coke's market-based management system impacts how Coke Disruptive Technologies invests? Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, creative destruction is really the whole concept of continuously innovating in such a way that you are making the change from the inside instead of you being affected by the change on the outside. So I use, often use the crude example of you can you pull the gun out and shoot yourself in the foot or hand it to the market and let it shoot you in the chest, right? And so it's hard to change. Everybody likes the concept of change until it's their turn. And big companies often struggle with this. So it's quite remarkable that Charles and the leadership at Coke have continued to innovate and change and build and draw new S-curves for companies as a private company that's now over $100 billion and still privately held, right? 
And so he clearly has not only embraced something, but built this market-based management philosophy around how do we not only disrupt ourselves, but how do we incentivize ourselves to do that? How do we bring on the best entrepreneurs and give them decision rights? So push those decision rights to them versus pulling them up to the top. And and then how do we continue to expand our capabilities by going into new areas? One of the things that I think Coke is very differentiated from other companies that I've seen is, and even KDT does this, is a lot of people make investments or expand into industries that they know. We expand into capabilities that we know. Capabilities can move across industries. So if you have a great capability in manufacturing in one particular industry, that same capability of understanding how to make things and how to manufacture them and how to handle supply change could also move over to, let's say, medicine or medical machines versus what you do in automotive. And so instead of just saying, I have to be in an industry, you have to understand your capabilities and strengths and then apply those. And when you apply them, how do you apply them first with what we call experimental discovery? How do we get in there, commit capital, time, resources, people, learn from it, and as we learn from it, then deploy more capital to create this virtual cycle of mutual benefit. When you expand into new capabilities, what factors determine if you're going to invest in that company? Yeah, so there's a number of factors, right? And when we look at a company, we're looking for a handful of things with a company, right? We're looking at is is this company highly disruptive? So is it disruptive versus the market alternatives? What What else is out there that is vying for this space or trying to do it? Or is this a completely new space, right? So when you start talking about your days of Friendster and MySpace, at the time, if somebody said, hey, do you need more friends or a way to connect with your friends? The answer was like, no, like I got friends. What do you mean? I need new friends. But what we hadn't fully embraced is what does it mean to have a social graph and to connect with them more continuously versus an email, right? Or meeting in person. And so that's a brand new space. So we have to understand, you know, is something, you know, highly, highly disruptive. So is it highly disruptive? Does it have high potential? right? Is there a mutual benefit, right? So for us to invest in a company, we, we try to say beyond the capital, what else can we do to help them accelerate their growth? There's a lot of capital out there right now. There's a lot of places that can deploy money into an investment. And I just think of one of the companies that I met with. When I met with the CEO originally, they had more than enough money around the table to do the deal that they had in hand. And when I sat down, I just said to the CEO, I said, Assuming you have the capital, what else do you need? And he laid out four or five strategic things that would help his company grow. And then we discussed those four or five things and how Coke could add more benefit to them. And through that discussion, you know, he asked, hey, would, would you guys like to be participate and lead this round? And so it was going beyond the capital, right? It was saying, hey, yeah, we need capital infusion, but that may not be quite as important as the people and products and processes behind it that will help you grow. And because Coke has developed a number of those things over time, how do we leverage those on behalf of new entrepreneurs? And so that's kind of how we think holistically about investing in companies is highly disruptive, right? Large potential platform, you know, there's gotta be mutual benefit. And the last thing is just principled entrepreneurs. And so we wanna work with people that have um, shared vision and values within their team and with ours but complementary capabilities. Like what do they do well that we can't do? And what do we do well that they can't do so that we can complement? I often think of me and my wife, right? 
she's all the things I'm not, right? She's smart and good looking and all the, I'm the opposite. So we, you know, we, we complement each other. And um, I think it's the same thing in an in investing relationship is how do you look for those things that you're not? And in, in, in more serious, and a more serious note of that is if you are a great financial person, but not a great technical one, do you have a great technical person on the other side to complement your financial or business acumen? And so looking for those capabilities I think is very important, not only in an early stage company, but even as you grow, you want people that aren't exactly like you. Do a lot of companies that are in discussions with KDT look at the strategic value of what KDT can bring to the table because of the vast holdings of Coke Industries, of opportunities to scale their business? It's been interesting. You know, when we first started, we believed that the differentiating factor for KDT would be our strategic capabilities. And it's it's not only proven to be true, but we even underestimated it. And so what I mean by that is we've been able to invest with a, a number of companies and deals where there was a lot of great VCs and other great investors chasing the deal. But I think we had a chance to participate because of additional value we brought to the table. Because of all this, we, we built a capability inside of KDT called Coke Labs. And what Coke Labs is, it's it's the connective tissue that reaches across all the Coke companies to bring strategic knowledge, resources, people to the table to help our company succeed. So not only does KDT leverage Coke Labs to bring subject matter experts to the table to help us understand a deal, but as we progress into the deal and finalizing it and funding it, we then have people across all the Coke companies coming to the table saying, how can we help this company succeed? And you got to remember, Coke has many multi-billion dollar companies. So we have subject matter experts that have seen lots of things, have lots of connections, and we try to bring those to bear and to help our companies. And um, I would say most of the companies in our portfolio have a handful, I don't know, four, five, six strategic initiatives that Coke is trying to assist in. Now, this is totally at the company's disposal. They don't have to leverage us, right? It's it's an option for them. So if they don't want our help on something, they don't have to. But we want to be open-handed to say, hey, if, if you need help in this area and we have people that can help you, don't feel like you need to go spend six to nine months trying to figure it out. What if we just brought those resources to the table as part of our investment to say, yeah, we, we want to help you because we think by helping you, It's also helping us, not just financially, but learn, because you're clearly doing something better, faster, different than we're doing, and we want to learn from that as well. And so it it does create that mutual benefit. That ties into the always learning philosophy uh, that starts with Charles and the entire company. Are you able to share any examples of a company that Coke brought resources to help that company grow and eventually mature? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of companies in our portfolio that we we've helped with. So as an example, you know, we, we originally made the investment in desktop metal. So Rick Fullop, the CEO over at desktop, um, that was a very popular company and very well run because of the leadership and their vision for us. So there was a lot of funding around it. And the more we got to know Rick, we realized that one, we had a number of 3d metal printing experts at Coke that we could bring to bear to help him. Um, we have a number of Q&A people that have helped test machines on our side that we could bring to bear to help him test his machines before they're shipped. 
you know, as he thought about, hey, how am I going to ship machines to BMW or Ford or, or Tiffany's or anyone that has a machine? How am I going to do it? Well, we happen to own a logistics company. So also a way that could be quite helpful, right? And so there are multiple of these scenarios. Another company um, called Outrider, which is doing um, autonomous vehicles in the yard spotting space, right? So when you pull an 18-wheeler into a warehouse area, another truck typically comes and takes the trailer and has to back it up and move it around and take it to the warehouse. Well, what if that could all be done robotically, autonomously? Well, we're testing those things at our own warehouses in addition to investing in the company. And so we want to be beneficial like that. And it, do, does it help the company? Sure, because it helps the company prove out their technology, um, move faster with lower costs. But then we can also take it to our friends in the industry too that own other warehouses and say, this is working great for us. You guys should think about using this as well. And so um, that strategic benefit really plays across. And you know, I would say in almost all of our companies to date, there is something that is creating a two-way door between the company and Coke Industries. And warehouses are a trend that's starting to emerge during Home Depot's Q2 earnings call. The company has they're investing $1.2 billion in supply chain facilities over the next five years as the company wants to offer same-day and next-day delivery to 90% of the U.S. population. This announcement clearly demonstrates the growth of logistics. Could you kind of share some of more detailed thoughts on this trend? Yeah, I think about it from twofold. One, like the COVID situation and the pandemic, right? All of a sudden we start talking about, um, you know, how do people work remotely and how do we have them spread out? Well, if you're in a lot of warehouse situations, other ones, you can be shoulder to shoulder in certain situations, right? So it's kind of created, um, or what I would say, it's, it's leaped us three to five years into the future about accelerating our innovation. So one is I think COVID's accelerated this. The second piece is at KDT and across Coke, we're always thinking about how can we give people better jobs? So it's not about replacing people with technology, it's about how do we give them better jobs? So instead of just saying, hey, we wanna have a robotic forklift and we're gonna get rid of the, the, the person that's doing the forklift, the question becomes is, if we can do a robotic forklift that's coming off a autonomous yard spotting and we can use cameras and computer vision to keep an eye on this and robots to move it down the supply chain, then we can take these really great hardworking people and deploy them in other areas that continue to expand our capabilities. And that's the way we think about it is saying, hey, um, the combination of COVID, um, strained international relationships with certain countries because now we need to make sure that we have those those materials and products and supplies in our own country and just the ability to move um, goods and services around our country is completely changing logistics and supply chain and I think that goes all the way from you know making it to shipping it to tracking it and that's stuff that Coke does today, but we want to get better at that as well. And so I think Home Depot is just one uh, public example of it. But I think behind the scenes, you're seeing a lot of robotic companies changing the, um, the industrial landscape, helping us think about IoT and tracking, keeping an eye on things from computer vision and separating as well as safety. And so there's a lot of these various components that play together. It's not something that's going to be solved overnight. Um, it's something that you have to iterate on. And I think that coming back to the idea of 
as we move into the third wave or what Steve Case calls the third wave of technology hitting more traditional industries, these timeframes will be longer because it takes longer to disrupt a manufacturing one than it does to write an app for your iPhone. But it will also have more significant impact long-term. And having significant impact, we're, we're currently going through the COVID-19 pandemic and there's certain companies that are panicking and there's other companies that are leading. And you're very fortunate uh, to have Charles Koch as your leader because he's clearly demonstrated an exceptional leadership. And I love to get some insight on this. It's It's been said that Charles has empowered a team inside of Coke nicknamed Charles Generals to make more investments. And this seems to be a page right out of good profit as Charles is empowering individuals during a time of chaos. Is this true? And if so, could you speak to it? Yeah, that's a good question. So I don't know if they're called Charles Generals or not, although I would certainly give any of them the general title because I respect them that much. <laughs> um, but one thing I saw during the the crisis and when it happened, and you know, I'd read about this in business books, but I'd never actually seen it in action was um, when things started happening in March and they're shutting down businesses and people are panicking and we don't know about school and I can go so far as to say, we don't know about college football right now, which we're not gonna solve that here, but I really miss college football if it doesn't happen. Um, what Charles did is he brought his leaders into a room and instead of you know pulling decision rights up to himself and to a few others and saying, okay, hey, everybody's panicking. We've got to centralize the decision-making process. He did the opposite. He took these decision rights and pushed them down to his leaders and said, now's the time for y'all to make more decisions which is exactly what you should do. It's just not what people typically do. When people panic, they pull things closer to their vest because they wanna be in control. So people don't like to be out of control. So typically, just human behavior wise, we pull things closer to us. He did what any great leader will truly do is saying, great, let's talk about this, but I wanna push additional decisions and rights and strategies to our teams so they can go make the decisions on the front line and I think that's so key. When you empower great people and they've earned that right to make good decisions, over time you're able to expand what you do in a meaningful way. One, I think it builds a great amount of rapport with your people because they know they're trusted and they're being allowed to make decisions that they know something about. And so you, you attract and retain the top talent. And then I also think it just allows you to grow your company in ways that you wouldn't have been able to otherwise if you had to have all the decisions, thousands of the decisions that get bottlenecked with a few people. Instead, they're being spread out to the people that do have the best knowledge and understanding to make those decisions. And did the site diagnostic investments come from this team? It did. Yeah. So site diagnostic was an investment. We actually um, have... A, a group out of Israel. So how KDT is structured is we have most of our team here domestically, but we also have uh, a managing director and uh, one of his partners in Israel. And so site diagnostics was actually something that was originated uh, through somebody in our network. So one of our teammates here uh, was a uh, high school classmate of one of the people over at site. And so that's how we originally got into the deal, or at least was originally made aware of it. And then we kind of built a, built upon it from there. That's a really good point. And as you look to the future and continue to make investment decisions through um, your various different managing partners, what role do you see autonomy and automation playing in those investments? Is it an industry that you're going to continue to double down on? 
Yeah, I think in, so when we say autonomy and automation, I think that's a broad space. So if I had to overgeneralize, I would say yes. I think it's a space that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was just even riding down to Oklahoma City from Wichita, where we are, which is about a two and a half hour drive over the weekend. And my son was with me and he knows that I'm in technology and he leaned over to me and said, hey, dad, I can't wait till the car drives itself so that you and I can just hang out and, <laughs> and talk the whole time, right? And that day's, that day's coming, right? So we will have a, autonomous cars that do all that for us, but there will be more of that, right? Um, whether that's forklifts, whether that's um, ways that we you know, have chefs or cooking this, there's a number of ways that autonomy that can influence our lives. And so I think we will continue to look into that in a way that's meaningful. And so, yes, from a high level overgeneralization, I think we'll lean into it. I think we have to find the spaces that make the most sense and where Coke can add value versus where somebody else can add value. And so those will be the things that we have to wrestle with over time. And so looking to the future, we could possibly see announcements of um, Coke making investments in automation in the industrial space to complement, say, Georgia Pacific or various different holdings inside of the organization? Yeah, and what most people don't know is that Coke over the last, I would say, five to seven years has invested over $20 billion in technology. So a huge number that has been pushed back into our companies. Now, some of that's through investments, some of that's through partnerships, right? Some of that is uh, through building things ourselves. So it's not homogenous on how we've spent that money. But it's a, it's a large number that believes we can do things better. We should do things better. And here's, here's something that's interesting to, to think about. And I didn't fully appreciate this until I'd kind of been in the role here for three years is the value of being a privately held company is a Wall Street or somebody else can't punish you for making a decision they don't understand. You know, if you're a publicly held company and you decide to make a crazy investment in something, you can have a bunch of analysts and outsiders saying, I don't get this and we're going to push the stock price lower because these guys are losing their minds. As a privately held company, you make investments that you believe are best for the long term of your company. And so we try not to just make quarter by quarter changes. While that's important, it's optimization we're really looking at the long-term vision and, and value creation. And it takes time. Great things take time, right? I'm just talking to my daughter, who's a 10-year-old a volleyball player. And she was talking about, she loves the game, right? And I just continue to remind her, it's not about one season, right? It's about training and learning how to do it right. So that five, 10 seasons from now, if your goal is to be a you know, a professional beach volleyball player, you can develop into that. I think it's the same thing with companies. We can't be too short-sighted. And sometimes we can be if we just take a pure VC uh, investment approach or if we just take a pure Wall Street approach of what's going to be better, best for us the next quarter or two. We try to avoid that where we can. I agree with you that great things take time. It goes back to the whole tortoise and the hare that we've all read as kids. And you mentioned this earlier in the podcast about how COVID is accelerating technolo technological trends. What trends do you see accelerating uh, due to COVID? Yeah, I mean, there, there's some very obvious ones. A couple of the obvious ones that I'll, I'll point out here is Captain Obvious, but um, just the changes in education, right? So 
what's happening right now is every school in the country, including universities, is starting to say, what does this look like in the future? We've seen stats as high as 20, 30% of um, college, of people or kids that are attending college right now saying they won't go back this next year, whether the college is in person or not, they're just simply not going. Other ones are saying, I can get this education from a lot of online learning or nano courses. And then you're also starting to see large companies, including Coke and Facebook and Google and others saying, we'll hire the right person directly out of high school. We, you don't need to go somewhere else. If, this, if somebody's highly talented and, and has strong capabilities, we'll bring them on and training them, train them ourselves. And so you're seeing this massive shift in education, which has been accelerated because of COVID. This was coming anyways, but COVID really forced us to think differently. And uh, I just even know at my kids' own school, they were already making adaptations to leverage more technology, not only in the classroom, but externally. And now that's, that's moving even faster. Um, another area is just medical technology. So you can point to site diagnostics that we're in or various other ones, but any place where you can accelerate the point of care and taking care of people and um, eliminating any bureaucracy and red tape, lowering the costs of our medical care and needs, um, and also preparing for a large number of people that will be in um, you know, a retirement um, environment, those things have to change. It cannot be, our medical costs in this country cannot continue to grow at the pace that they have and consume this much of um, our time and resources. So those things are, those things are gonna be natural changes. But with those, anytime you have a big massive shift on you know, medicine, um, which could be personalized medicine in the future, right? Or education, which becomes personalized education, that's gonna affect other things as well, right? It's gonna affect how we travel. So the question then becomes is, even after COVID lifts, are we all gonna hop back on planes? Are we all gonna resume what we've done before? Or has a, a significant cultural shift happened where we realized, I can do a lot of this remote, right? Um, I can have some of my meetings virtually and we can have better tools for this remote and virtual workforce than we've ever had before. And so I credit COVID while nobody wanted a pandemic and I am certainly very sensitive and thoughtful about people. And there's been a large number of people that have been hurt because this has happened so quickly. I, I think long-term what it's going to do is it's going to accelerate, accelerate us as a society to look at some good long-term trends that will lower our costs, but also allow us to be educated, our healthcare taken care of, our job security increased. I think those things will come, but there's gonna be a bumpy, bumpy road in the middle. As companies such as Coke hire individuals directly from high school, what impact will that have on higher education? Yeah, so I, I think higher education, um, and I'll, I'll break it down to very simple terms from my simple mind here, higher education or lower education, right? There's gonna be a blurring between the two. What would stop a very prestigious, you know, private school or a great public school for offering two more years after your senior year, right? Or by allowing them to bring on online courses to supplement what's happening the last two or three years of your high school to prepare you for a professional degree. 
Um, what's stopping the businesses around, whether that's a tech company or uh, industrial company or just even a local restaurant or anything else, from building and implementing more internship-like programs, some in person and some online, to help train people to be ready. I think all of this is happening in different pockets. And that's gonna that's already having an effect on what colleges are and what they're going to become. So I think, and you know, these are long-range projections that, you know, we may not need half the colleges and universities that we have today. Or if we have them all, how are they going to transition into a meaningful way to prepare people for certain roles and certain responsibilities as they come out of school? So one of the things my wife and I always talk about is we, we want to make sure we're not preparing our kids for a future that doesn't exist. We want to prepare them for one that does, not that we can have um, any great insights or, or you know magic ball to look into the future, but we want to make sure that we're preparing them for a future in which they can know how to think, um, they know where to reach resources. And I think what's really important in today's society, and you're going to see a lot of this kind of coming up even around the election this year is great leaders of tomorrow are going to be curators of truth. They're going to be able to look through the noise and see what is actually true in there, what is supported by data, right? What is not just emotionally driven. So feelings are real. They're just not reliable. So how can we help the next generation of leaders operate in such a way that they're being thoughtful, logical, data-driven, compassionate, humble, full of integrity? And those types of things can be taught elementary, high school, you know, higher education, but there's going to be a blending of that happening. And I think there's multiple ways to get to that. Um, and I just use the, you know, the Khan Academy, the, 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 the genesis of the Khan Academy is a good example. You know, he was, uh, the, the founder was a hedge fund manager in New York, and he was trying to help, I think it was his nephew in Florida with math. And he was having trouble, so he just started creating YouTube videos, showing him on a whiteboard how to do math. And you know, he logged in one day to find out he was getting thousands to millions of people watching. Well, clearly, he was disrupting it because these kids weren't learning this in whatever system they were in, and they needed to see it over and over again. So those types of disruptions are helpful because the market reacts to them and says they're helpful. And that will change the way that we, we educate our kids for tomorrow. When we look around education with our kids, so I have a six-year-old um, going into first grade and so very um, up close and personal with the education process. And my whole philosophy was, and this is pre-COVID and we're going to do it post-COVID, is that I'll give you an example. I was arranging a tour to NASA. I wanted to take the kids to go see. Um, we're here in South Florida so we can go see the spaceship. And I want the kids to experience it because I believe in very similar um, and Charles' philosophy is that you can unlock an always learning philosophy. The child can say, this is really cool, but okay, well, how do you get it up there? Then the child can go on a Nat Geo book or down this deep dive of books. And next thing you know, they can go on to become a scientist or work for NASA because you unlock that ability in them. I think that as we go into that education, if you unlock that ability in a kid, say in kindergarten, first, second, third grade, it can change their entire life. And as they grow up and then maybe perhaps somebody calls them up and says, you have this incredible talent. We've heard about the science papers that you written or what you did in your science fair. And then they go into Coke and they go through this entrepreneurship program. It could just completely change their lives. And 
you didn't mention this, but I think it's really important to mention. If that child decides to to join Coke Industries, for example, they're not straddled with four or five hundred thousand dollars of debt. Right. And that's completely changing the game. You're a well-paying company that's giving them a well-paying job. Yeah. It cha- it completely changes their game. Absolutely. And if we look and we multiply that over the economy, that's going to get really interesting over time. Right. And I think what you're doing in parenting, there's a couple of things that I, I think both as parents, but as schools, we have to embrace because I think it really is the future is uh, one is how do you make that moment of going to NASA or whatever a teachable moment, right? You can create that in the moment situation of saying, oh, wow, that's not always that cool. How'd they get that off the ground? Like, and now we have these, you know, pocket computers you can pull out and help them research real quick. Well, did you know this is how you create jet propulsion? I just had a situation with my kids this weekend that were riding in the car and my youngest who's eight is really into uh, the Avengers, right? The movie, like superheroes, all that fun stuff. Um, but he's also learning how to play piano. Well, he's, he's often seen piano as something that he has to do, not something that he gets to do. And I just said, I said, so you really like in the Avengers? He's like, yeah, I, I love the, the movie. I love the theme music. And I said, would you know, you know, you can play the Avengers theme song on the piano. He's like, no, you can't. And I just pulled up YouTube and I played it in the car for him and his eyes just lit up, right? And we downloaded sheet music, beginner sheet music for Avengers because all of a sudden he started to see the possibility. What could I do? And so we need to inspire our kids, right? We need to use the in the moment teachable moments to inspire them, what could I do? And then as we start to give them the tools, then step back and see what they do with them. Right, because the great entrepreneurs, the great leaders will take those and do even more than we ever expected with them. And that's the fun part of education in my mind is once you've opened somebody's eyes and inspired them, and then you've given them the tools and they're building the capabilities, then you kind of step back a little bit to say, okay, hopefully we've taught them in a way that they're gonna make small mistakes, not big mistakes, but they're gonna do something with this that we can't even begin to imagine. And that's the type of stuff that just changes society, right? That's the type of stuff that cures cancer. That's the type of stuff that, you know, um, 20X is the amount of food supply we have in our country because of a couple kids who were inspired by something, by their parents in school, to go out and make that change. And I'm happy that you said inspiration. On a previous podcast, uh, we had a good friend of mine, Dr. Peter Weiss, and he talked about creating uh, technologies for self-driving cars where if a person has a cardiac or some sort of medical where that vehicle will automatically know to reroute them to the hospital. And think about the positive impact that has on the family that a loved one doesn't pass. And all these great things. And you can just have a child that went had a, you know, God forbid, had a cardiac situation with a parent and it resonates with them. So you know what? That's never going to happen again. I'm going to build something because they were they took a, a negative and, and made it a positive because of the situations that they were in. And I think a lot of great entrepreneurs, honestly, they start from a pain point, right? They start because something in their life went went wrong, right? So you're seeing great medical technologies that some people are trying to help with diabetes because somebody in their life has it and has struggling to deal with it. Or, you know, one of the companies we invested in, Inside Tech, um, it uses um, ultrasound to ablate the part of the brain that deals with essential tremors and Parkinson's. So if you're shaking so bad that you can't write your name or pick up your drink, you can literally lay in an MRI machine with a special helmet and a couple hours later you stand up and your shakes are gone, right? Well, the first time I saw it, I'm like, that looked like magic. 
but think how many lives become better because of that. And because that's the case, the alternative of like splitting your skull open and peeling back your head, like, and the not only the cost, but just the discomfort and everything that goes with that, that disappears to a new technology that makes people's lives better. And I think that the great entrepreneurs are gonna focus on things like that. And then it's just our job as investors to support them and try to help them accelerate that. So it becomes real as soon as possible. I just, I'm, I'm blown away by that because you're not only helping that, that individual that has Parkinson's, you're having a really positive impact on their, their immediate family, their extended family and society. And think about that when that person can, can go live their life, how, how good they feel. And like the, and they can go on to create something great because of the investment that you made in that technology. And I want to dive back to education for a minute. So I remember uh, going through schools this is how you balance a checkbook and then you add up dollar bills and, and pennies mm -hmm. and this and that. And now we're entering a contactless payment society. How do you see that trend emerging? And at some point, will kids start learning about that technology in school to replace the traditional banking? Um, they better, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, my, my wife the other day pulled out the checkbook because for whatever reason, this one place would only take a check, right? And my kids looked at it like, what is that? Like they literally didn't know what it was. Right, because we don't pay with checks anymore. Right? We have one because we have to for certain places. But the reality is we're moving towards a society right, where we can do almost all of it digitally. And I think that's why as you start to look at new opportunities for you know, contactless payments or, or cryptocurrencies or other ways to digitize assets, how can you not only store value but exchange value in meaningful ways? Now, we're, we're still early in the process. We've done some of this contactless payments stuff already, but if you look at us carrying around cell phones or other opportunities, those are easy, meaningful, um, efficient ways to exchange value. And we should be teaching those things in school just like we taught us back in the day how to sign a check, right? Or how to count out coins. Those are the things that need to be um, addressed now. And if they're if they're not, right, we are preparing our kids for a future that doesn't exist because we should be able to make a quick payment with somebody in Brazil and that should take three seconds. And that's where we're going. And are we all the way there? No, we're not all the way there yet, but there's a lot of the underlying technologies that are being put in place to help us get there. And I really think those are the things that will not only benefit a global society, but will also allow our kids to um, continuously learn and they can be part of the front part of that way for, versus being left behind. And I think we, we need to be sensitive to this piece of left behind too, right? There are, some, um, there are some kids in cultures and areas that don't have the access. So we need to start thinking about how do we help them as well, right? Everybody should jointly have access to this and be educated on it and have the ability to step in and participate in that. And so we want to create that level playing field. And that's that's a big part of uh, market-based management is saying, we don't want a lot of government intervention in things. We want there to create a level market playing field so that the best technologies, best companies, best ideas win so that benefits all of society. And where there are holes, that's where the great leaders need to step up and say, okay, how do we bring on anything anybody that may be disadvantaged to come along with us? 
That's a really good point because I was trying to get with the Boys and Girls Club of Las Vegas to bring in self-driving cars to underprivileged areas of, of Las Vegas and Henderson to allow those children. I said, uh, this gentleman was a former NFL star, and he was saying that all these kids want to do, they want to be Deion Sanders, they want to be one of these football players. And I said, but what if I brought a self-driving car there? And he's like, oh, that's cool. And he, and he said, that's cool. But he said, you know what you got to explain to him? If you build this technology for a self-driving car, you can own the football team. And when we, when we talk to these kids and they, and they understood that mentality, you don't have to be a basketball player, you don't have to be an NFL star. Technology can take you. The, it just changed the game when we, we had this virtual conference with them. And hopefully at some point we'll be able to take a vehicle there because you just unlock that incredible talent that those individuals uh, didn't have exposure to. Well, you're bringing up this uh, such a great point of one casting vision. What's possible? right? What's possible for our kids? But by the way, we shouldn't forget that as adults because sometimes we get very myopic in doing our day jobs of what's, what's possible for us. I don't believe the adage of, you know, an old dog can't learn new tricks, right? If I become an old dog and I can't learn new tricks, then it's time for me to be glue, right? I need to be able to learn new tricks. And I think we can continue to paint a vision and inspire people so that they can learn and understand what's your comparative advantage. Like, what is Grayson really good at? What is Jason really good at? And help us develop those areas because then those can play in lots of different ways. Is we don't just have to be a football player or um, a doctor. There's all there's you know 150,000 things in between there that we can become, and we need to embrace the skills that we have to be good at whatever whatever that role is. And you know if you would have asked somebody 20, 30 years ago. You're going to be, um, you know, a graphic designer, or you're going to be a software engineer. That that didn't even exist, right? Because we didn't have those level. Uh, you're going to be a mobile engineer for, you know, the iPhone. The what? The huh? Like that? <laughs> you wouldn't even get there because that that role didn't exist because we didn't continue to innovate and grow yet. And so I think we're going to be shocked the next generation too of some of the what their titles and roles are going to be that we're going to look back and say i I didn't see that coming apple constantly continues to innovate and they recently brought moby to turn iphones and ipads into payment terminals using nfc when and if apple integrates this technology what new roles do you see emerging for jobs and then what new uh let's just say trends do you see coming out of this do we have little entrepreneurs that are starting um higher end versions of lemonade stands or do we start to see that because the, the payment process is so frictionless? Yeah, so I think there's a number of things that goes not only with a frictionless payment process, but think of the second and third order effects of what if as you can you know build your mobile lemonade stand to use your example, if that continues to grow, could I quickly get uh, a loan from $25,000 and that approved with a fingerprint scan, right? Because it can see how much you know revenue I'm bringing in on a daily basis? What if I don't have to go to a physical bank? What if I don't even take the loan from a physical bank because I had a number of people that worked together in a crowdsourcing method to give me the $20,000, right? You can start to see how this changes entrepreneurship, which then changes your, your local area, which then changes culture, right? It continues to build on top of itself. And each one of those, um, inspirational, innovative changes like the iPhone builds on top of the next. And so 
You think about you know contactless payments. You think about the next chain of well, what if those are hold, held on a blockchain, or whether what if other assets can be digitized so we can pass the ownership of my car by title instead of having a document. It just passes by a blockchain, right? And it happens in real time. A number of that, a number of those things are coming now. We should get excited about those, and we should paint the vision for them. The hard part is to say when, right? When's that coming? And you know, there were multiple times that we thought the music industry would change all the way back to Napster. It took a long time, right? And it's still it's still starting to evolve in changes that we thought would have happened 20 years ago. So what we what we find as investors and entrepreneurs is sometimes we have the right idea at the wrong time or we're too far ahead or behind the wave. And so I just I compare it to to surfing. When I when I learned how to get on a surfboard if you weren't paddling at just the right time, I either missed the wave or I got in front of it and the wave crushed me, right? <laughs> yep. And that's exactly what it's like building a company. You get behind it and you just miss it. And then you're just floating out there and you just kind of die a natural death or you get in front of it and it crushes you. But there's that small amount that find how to get on the wave. That's a really great segue to this wonderful quote uh, from Charles Koch where he said, we've made a lot of mistakes just none large enough to sink us. As a venture capitalist and as a surfer, you take a lot of risks. What are some of the biggest risks Coke Disruptive Technologies has taken since it was founded in 2017? Yeah, well, so first of all, let's let's hope I'm a better better venture capitalist than I am a surfer um, from watching <laughs> how I got up on a board the first few times. Um, you know, I think it was very innovative on its own regard just for um, Chase to step up, Chase Coke, our president of KDT, to step up and build a growth and venture arm. I mean, if you think about it, we're a hundred and you know over a hundred billion dollar company that's successful in a number of different areas. And the leadership team here had enough forethought to say Coke was built on entrepreneurship and working with the best people. And we're growing. And because we're growing, we can't lose touch with the people that build stuff and in create new. So let's build a venture and growth arm to go out and do that. And we started by making more growth investments, right? So writing larger checks to more established companies. But as we continue to grow, we said, okay, let's continue to grow earlier to a place now that we can invest very early in a company and bring capabilities to them in addition to the capital to help them grow. And so the fact that they're willing to put their money where their mouth is to say, hey, innovation is important, entrepreneurship is important. And it's so important, we're going to invest our own dollars domestically and anywhere in the world. You know, that's, um, they're absorbing risks to go do that. In the venture capital world, it's interesting because we always celebrate the ones that win, right? We're always excited about those few that win and be like, yeah, I was in Facebook and yeah, I was in <laughs> Alibaba. There is 150 behind there that you missed, right? This is not a this is not a profession where you hit everything that comes. Um, now we want to believe that we get better at screening and diligencing and and doing deals, but if something the the best ideas are not the most obvious ones, right? The best ideas are ones that you're kind of you don't know if you're on the front of your chair or the back of your chair, and you're kind of like, okay, is this guy brilliant or is he crazy? And you think about that. And I mean, I remember back when, you know, Amazon was in its early days. I remember people thinking, it's just an online bookstore. It's nothing else. And by the way, who's ever putting their credit card online? Like, I remember those conversations. 
Yep. I remember they had conversations on the iPhone, if you don't remember this, where it has no buttons. What do you mean? I, I'm not going to get the tactile feel of not having any buttons. And people were like, it's never going to make it. The iPhone's never going to make it, right? And so we didn't know if they're crazy or they're brilliant. In those situations, they turned out to be brilliant. But there's a lot of other ones that you look back now and say, wow, that person was crazy. But we only have that luxury of saying it because out of hindsight, right? And so I think you you do need to step up to the plate and support a lot of ideas um, that you, you're not 100% confident of. And I, I just had this conversation with one of my friends who is the first investor in Zoom. So Zoom's got a little bit of use over the last pandemic days, right? <laughs> and I said, so what made you want to invest in Zoom? And the, the CEO's name's Eric. I said, what made you want to invest in Eric? And he goes, listen, at the time, you had WebEx and you had Google Hangouts and you had Skype. You had all these big players in the space. But Eric had a vision about making this accessible in the cloud. So the underlying technology was different and making it a better experience for people. And he, you know, Bill Tai, the, the first investor said, I, I can't tell you how many people I made a call to that said, no, they wouldn't invest. And they wouldn't invest because they just didn't see it. And you don't blame somebody for that, right? Because if there's other big players, you, you wouldn't have seen it either. But if you can understanding what if you can understand what's truly differentiated underneath the surface, then sometimes you can spot uh, great technologies. And as you look to spot great technologies, what is the future of Coke disruptive technologies? So I think the future of Coke disruptive tech is is, is there's kind of a twofold way of thinking about this. One is we want to see great investment returns, just because I hope hopefully we get more dollars out than we put in. So we need to prove out that we can do that over a long period of time. But the second piece, which I think is tied to that, but is potentially more exciting is, how does that have a transformational impact to Coke Industries and to the society around us? So you know, to use our inside tech example on the non-invasive focus ultrasound or a site diagnostic example, med tech is not an area Coke's typically been in. So people could step back and say, what are they doing? Well, man, if we can even have a slight impact on the way, you know, medicine and technology is delivered to people, and if that extends everybody's life half a year, or if it allows you to have um, better quality of life or makes your life better, what are the second and third order effects of what you could do with your life because of that? And so it there's a transformational impact to Coke Industries to say, hey, we need to continue to make our own companies better but how do we make other companies and industries better? That transformational impact is the part that's exciting. And it's harder to measure, right? It's harder to say, okay, KDT moved the needle four and a half percent this year. We're not gonna be able to do that, right? It's gonna have to be something we look back and say, because of this investment, it opened this door, it had this many impact on people. And it's gonna be something that we look back decades at a time to see the true transformational impact. But I think we can get anecdotal stories along the way to see that there there's it's truly driving change and and hopefully that change will will be beneficial to coke on on a bottom line uh, scenario but also just making the people that work here and the people that um, work with coke and you know at any one time there's i think thirty thousand trucks on the road that are carrying coke materials um, you know make the the lives of the people we serve better and i think that's our ultimate goal is if you can be so 
customer obsessed, that we want to make people's lives better. And that drives us to make better investments. And when I say make people's lives better, it's the people in society as well as the people we serve internally. We make both of them better by making great investments and helping these companies grow. I think that's what gets that's what gets our team out of bed in the morning. That's that's in- incredible. And it's something that you and the entire team at Coke and, and KDT should be really proud of. And as we look to wrap up this wonderful interview, I'd like to leave it on this note. What advice would you have for an entrepreneur who's looking to raise capital for the first time? It's a great question. You know, it's one that um, I get quite often of like, you know, when when should I raise capital? How should I raise capital? So a couple of things to think about is first and foremost, are you doing something that you're just deeply passionate about, right? We, we're looking for entrepreneurs that they would do this for free if they could. Like they just love it that much. They want to go out there and, you know, I often see this with, you know, like my son, he, he plays basketball. If he gets a free moment, you know where he's going? He's going to the hoop because that's where he just naturally goes is he wants to go shoot hoops. And, you know, we want entrepreneurs that when then they're in their free time, they're going to go work on whatever this passion is. So we want people that are just, you know, they're obsessed with what they're doing. And there was a commercial that came out not too long ago that said, obsessed is just another word for awesome. Right. And we want awesome, obsessed entrepreneurs that are looking at this. The second thing I would say to them is ask yourself the question, do you need to raise capital? Um, You know, there are certain situations that if you have a truly transformative big idea that you're going to need certain capital. But do you need it as soon as you think you do? How much traction can you get? How many, how can you prove out your use case scenario? How can you grow some of this without capital? That, that won't always be the case. If you grow fast enough, you will need it. But as an ex-entrepreneur, I often think of how can I grow this as fast and as far as I can without too much additional capital so that I can continue to sit at the helm and kind of control the rounds of financing that come my way. So the, you know, that question you have to ask yourself is, do we need the capital at all? And then the third piece is, and this is, even though I say it's the third piece, it should come really early in the process of how, and even more important than the cop capital is how do you get the right people around you? Sometimes we ask ourselves the question, Hey, I just, I need the capital to make this happen. Well, if I'm, if I'm the one that you're coming to pitch on the capital, my question is going to be, do you have the right people? I like, are you already pursuing, are these people already bought into your vision that, hey, if the capital and the things there, you have the right people to go do this or have people believed in it so much that they've already volunteered their time to start helping even before the capital's there. Because there's nothing hard, there's nothing better than the heart of a volunteer. When somebody's willing to put their own time against it, even when they're not getting compensated, they believe in it a lot. And so we, we're looking for those types of people. And so, you know, we, we want to hear from great entrepreneurs. And I think we do hear from great entrepreneurs a lot. Um, but I think that they also need to understand like, what am I, what am I building? Am I, am I trying to build out a giant platform or am I also just trying to build a lifestyle company? Meaning there's great lifestyle companies that could serve the Wichita market or the San Fran market or the Miami market, but they're not going to be any bigger than that. And they don't have to be, there's nothing wrong with just serving the area in which you live. And you can have a great thriving business where your family benefits and the society benefits and, you know, the area around your benefits. It doesn't have to be a giant international business. And some, we need those entrepreneurs. 
But for the venture world, if you're going to go raise venture capital, that type of money is typically looking for something that is going to be on a larger scale, right? Something that serves everyone in the U.S. or a global market. And what I always tell entrepreneurs, just be careful what you ask for. Because uh, you take venture money, they're expe- expecting you to grow, which means there's long days and nights and pressure because you have other people's money that you're putting to work. And you're taking typically more risk along the way to get there, which is a fine thing to do as long as you understand that that's what you're doing. And that's a wonderful way to wrap it. And as we've heard on this brilliant interview with Jason, the best ideas are not necessarily obvious ones. Great things take time. And Coke Industry is making the lives of society better, not just for their employees, but for all individuals in society. And Jason, I thank you for this absolutely wonderfully awesome uh, interview. And thank you for uh, taking uh, so much time with us. Very generous of you. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Thanks for all you do, by the way. You guys' podcast is great. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.